Uh, thank you all uh, for singing together. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Acts 17. We're going to begin reading uh, where we left off last time, verses 1 through 9. We'll set the tone for tonight and will uh, really help uh, lead us into what I think is going to be the heart of our message down in verses 10 through 15. But uh, I'd like to go ahead and read um, Acts 17, verse 1 through 9. I really have, uh, feel good about tonight's uh, conversation that God wants to have with us with His Word and through His Word. And I really think this is a message, as all of these messages in Acts have been, this is a message um, about the church for the church. Uh, and I really think this is where the people of God uh, can learn to thrive um, as His church um, if we will follow in these steps of those who uh, went before us and those who, who paved this way um, that is called the book of Acts. So Acts 17, uh, the scripture says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where they were at a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and rise again from dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And from some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded, being envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, those who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king Jesus they troubled their crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things so when they had taken security from Jason and the rest they let them go now last week we began the talk about the approach that Paul and his team took in their ministry that they uh, continue here um, in their time at Thessalonica uh, last time we particularly talked about how they interfaced with and responded to the opposing political and cultural scenes and structures of their day. By all means, nothing was making it easy on them. That's an understatement. We talked about adopting that approach in that posture, how we might would follow in their steps uh, and how we deal with the political forces in our world, the cultural differences in our world, um, and how we might mimic their tactics regarding their sensitivity to and their focus on how their witness and testimony was being perceived in their world. We know throughout Acts, their goal was to get the biggest audience and make the biggest difference. Uh, basically, what it all boiled down to in what we talked last time and what we see all throughout Acts is Paul and his ministry was all about maintaining a voice, maintaining a voice, maximizing evangelism. They, of course, did not want to be persecuted. They didn't want to face difficulties. But regardless of what the circumstances were, Paul's goal was we've got to maintain a voice and we've got to maximize our evangelistic uh, potential. Paul made it clear in all of his, uh, the places that he went. Rome was not the enemy and he wanted to make sure the church knew this because there were times when it felt like Rome was the enemy, like these mobs that came against them that was full of Jewish people and Greek people. There were times that it was easy to point the finger at culture and state and say, these are the enemies. But Paul and the church always kept their focus on the right things and they kept their scope on the true enemies, sin 
and death. The enemies were not as it seemed to be, but behind those forces, behind those things, were greater enemies, sin and death, and they refused to get distracted by things that would not fan the flames of evangelism. And the church could learn so much from their tactic. Now, what does that mean in layman's terms? This is the way I kind of break it down and helps me keep it straight. They were not point makers. They were difference makers. This is such a relevant message for us in 2021 in a world where politically and culturally things are as against us as they were in the book of Acts. I don't know if it ever will be as bad for us as it was for the church in the book of Acts because they faced persecution from Rome. They faced opposition from Judaism. They faced animosity on every corner. Uh, Many of them died for their faith. We know those stories. But the one thing we can learn from them as we face a political and cultural world that is different than us, that doesn't receive us as we would like them to and never will, they were not point makers. They were difference makers. Now, let me explain. It's easy to make points. It's easy and there always will be opportunities to make points and be right and have the people in your corner clap for you and amen you and say, that's right, keep going. It's easy to make points. It's convenient to make points. There are opportunities every day in our world today, more than ever, you can make points verbally. You can make points online. You can talk to someone in the to their face. You can send them a message. It's easy to point the finger and say, I'm right, you're wrong. Here's why. It's easy to point out why everyone else is wrong or why we're right. It's easy to do that. And I'm not saying there isn't a time for that. But the early church was not content at being a point-making church. They were focused on, they were considering and thinking about how can we make a difference and will this point make a difference? If it won't, we aren't going to make it. We're going to try to find a better way to make that difference. Now, points made will score with some and scorn others. By that, I mean, when we make points, some people love it and some people hate it, right? When you make a point about something that someone agrees with you about, they love it and they want you to do more of it. And it gets under the skin of people who disagree with you. Point making is fun sometimes because it riles people up and it gets people on our side or it really you know, antagonizes those that we don't even like anyway. Point making will score with some and scorn others, but differences, which is what we aim to make, differences impact hearts. You and I cannot be content at making points in this world. We must strive to make a difference to impact the heart of every person that we come in contact with. And that It might leave people without a choice to ask the question, who is their God? What is this church? What what, what goal are they after? And why are they so passionate? It's hard to ignore. It's impossible to ignore the passion within them and the purpose that they're focused on. Now, do we want to score points with minds or do we want to set fire to hearts? It depends on what your motive is, honestly, what our motives are. If we're driven by religion, If we're driven by politics or culture over and instead of our devotion to Jesus, ultimately we're driven by our egos. 
And ego is all about how we feel, how we look. Ego wants to make a point. The Pharisees made points all the time. Religion makes points all the time. We can make big, bold, loud points all day long. For instance, if you go home and watch your favorite cable news channel or your least favorite cable news channel, here's what I guarantee you will happen tonight from, or right now from the hours of 7 to 11. Somebody's going to interview somebody that they agree with and at the bottom of the screen it's going to say something funny and something witty and something punchy and they're going to make a point and everybody watching is going to shake their head and say, that person's right because you're already watching the channel you agree with, right? Because why would you watch a channel you don't agree with? That would just make you mad. Maybe if you like that kind of stuff, I don't know. Maybe you're like me and you go and read people's social media stuff and you don't agree with them and you read stuff that they say that makes you more angry than you were angry and you wonder why you're not happy, right? Maybe you like to do that. I don't know. But when you watch that certain channel or read that certain feed, if you agree with that person and you read the things that they say that you agree with, those points kind of you know stroke your ego and they make you happy contrary if you read something that you disagree with right those points kind of rile you up but we are not a church and we as Christians cannot be a people that are content with making big bold loud easy points about certain ideas and subjects ultimately it may not make a difference and if it doesn't make a difference, I think we're wasting time and maybe even disobeying God. Again, sometimes it's okay to make points, but if there can't be a difference made, we might actually be into disobedience to God. Now you may say, and you say, well, Justin, shouldn't we stand for something? Yes, we should stand for something. The gospel of Jesus Christ and the mission of his church to reach people and save people. That's what we should stand for. And we should not settle for a, for a strategy that does not accomplish that. Now, the reason why I think this is important, because we've read about this in Acts, but there's an example between the religious leaders and Jesus that I think influenced the way Paul and his disciples did church and, and did ministry. You've heard of the story between Jesus and the Pharisees, how they often debated with each other. My favorite example, one of the most powerful examples, is from Matthew 22, when the Pharisees came with some points to make. Matthew 22 says the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus with his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinions for you're not swayed by appearances. And they're just buttering him up trying to, you know, he, he can read right, see right through this. But they're basically saying, Jesus, we know you are the point maker, but we've got a point we'd like to make to you and see what you have to say about it. Tell us then what you think, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now they had a plan. If he says yes, we'll catch him in his words and tell him why he's wrong. If he says no, we'll catch him in his words, tell him why he's wrong, and then we'll report him to Rome as being treasonous. So they had a plan. They, had a, they already had their, their, their you know, manipulation figured out. But Jesus, aware of their malice, he says, why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? And then he kind of turns this all on its head. Show me the coin for the tax. Who's got a coin? And he, one of them pulls the coin out of their pocket. They wish they wouldn't have done this. Give me the coin. They brought him to Daenerys and Jesus said, whose face is on the coin? Whose image is on the coin? And they all said together, Caesar's. And this is the point when they realize this was a stupid question to ask Jesus because he just turned, made a fool of us. 
Whose image is on it? Caesar. And he says, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But whose image is on your face? Render to God the things that are God's. In this moment, Jesus, of course, shows us that the things that we often get riled up about in this world uh, often are really distracting us from the true purpose and goal and ministry that God has called us to. Now, in this situation, did Jesus endorse that when you pay taxes, you are hailing Caesar because this tax that gave Caesar this money was a way of saying that Caesar is Lord or Caesar is God? Was Jesus endorsing that? Of course not. But Jesus also knew something very important. Such an immaterial gesture was a necessity of citizenship and ultimately beneficial in maintaining civility, honor, and influence. So why did Jesus not say, well, of course you shouldn't pay taxes because that tax says that Caesar is God. And of course Caesar isn't God. You shouldn't agree with that. You should rebel against that and you have a good reason to do so. That would have made a good point. But Jesus is after something bigger than points. He's trying to make a difference. Now, to Jesus, that was a worth the, it was worth the gesture because the difference that was, could be made was more important than the easy point that could be scored. Because Jesus' followers are civil and cooperative like Paul in the book of Acts, Acts 16 and beyond as they go to the Roman Empire, they have an opportunity to get the ear of many that they may have, they may would have not otherwise. Last time we looked at Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, 3 and 4, and maybe you raise an eyebrow at some of the commands that Paul and Peter gave us about how to cooperate and respect, pray for, even obey some may say with biblical bullets, the right thing to do is to not cooperate, to disrespect, even rebel. And yes, the New Testament advocates that we take advantage of earthly liberties and to, 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 to aim for earthly liberties. But it also reminds us that when we are infringed here on earth, we are still empowered by heaven and we are still called to endure and serve the Lord. And it could be that in that season of struggles, in that season of suffering, we have an opportunity to love one another and make a difference that we maybe could not have made otherwise. That's what drive the early church and that, was, that is what must drive us. When we see these earthly kings and queens exert their power as if they are totally sovereign and autonomous, we know they are mere chess pieces of our God. We are not discouraged nor dismayed by earthly kings or queens, nor are we smitten by them because we serve and have faith in another king. That was the word that began circulating throughout the church as early as Acts 17, as they moved from Philippi to Thessalonica. Acts 17 verse 7 tells us as much. These Christians, they are civil, they are cooperative, they don't try to make an unruly display, yet it's clear that their faith is not in our God, their faith is not in our King. They serve another King, they serve a different mission than we would assume religion would. They have a different way. They have confidence in his plan. They're committed to his plan. They're grounded by his plan. They're empowered by his plan. And that's why they don't panic. And that's why they don't fear. And that's why they stick with their difference-making strategy. 
which is verse 6 puts it, was turning the world upside down. You know what really was the most upside down about their approach? Now that phrase upside down is revolutionary language, but notice they did not come into Thessalonica with swords or spears, torches or pitchforks. They came with the gospel. They came civilly. They came decently. They came with a message. Remember Jesus characterized the kind of movement his church would be back in John 18. He said when he was on trial before Pilate, my kingdom's not of this world. If it was of this world, my servants would be fighting, but my servants don't fight like your servants fight. My kingdom's not of this world. They have a different approach. They were turning the world upside down, not with the way most revolutionaries do or would and still do, uh, but through a supernatural message, a supernatural message and a spiritual lifestyle. This is something I want to really focus on tonight. They turned their world upside down with a supernatural message and a spiritual lifestyle. Our message, listen, our gospel is not of this world. Our gospel is not based on what may impact the here and now. Our gospel is bigger than that. Our gospel is better than that. Our gospel is not tied to a certain circumstance on this side of things. Our gospel is supernatural and our lifestyle should therefore be spiritual. This is what resonated so powerfully with the Gentiles who had previously been completely unexposed to Judaism and to the scriptures. Verse three of chapter 17 is the heart of it. He went into these towns preaching that God sent the Messiah, Christ, who suffered and rose again. This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Messiah. That was the message that changed the world. You say, well, how was that enough? <laughs> I'll tell you that it was more than enough. Let me explain. When the Greeks and the Romans heard this message that God became a person, that their Savior, the Savior that Paul preached, was not, uh, was not just a man. He was God in flesh. That resonated with them in a way that, they, that, that could not be categorized in their own Roman or Greek religions. That God became a human and did something for humanity, that God was for humanity, that God did something for us, that God is for us. That was completely unheard of in the Greco-Roman religions. Rather than coming to take from them, he came to do something for them to transform them. This was a brand new category for Greeks and Romans who had previously understood their pantheon of gods in the very opposite way. If you were to go to a Greek or a Roman in the first century or any time uh, before or after that, if you were to go to a Greek or a Roman that, that served in, that worshipped at one of the many altars in, the, in, their, in their cities that worshipped the pantheon of gods, Greek, uh, Zeus or Jupiter, and you were to ask them, what does the God, what do God or what does the gods think about you? What do the God, how do the gods feel about you or about any of us? They would say this to you. The gods play and people pay. That is how they understood the pantheon of gods. The gods play and we pay. The gods do what they want and we suffer for it. If they ever would come to earth, it's 
in human appearance. They would never disgrace themselves with flesh. They would do so in the appearance of it, maybe. If they ever came to earth, it would be to lord over us and cause us to grovel in their presence and most likely to toy with us. Caesar believed himself to be the embodiment of the gods and he thought his right as the God among men. His right was to toy with people. His right was to take from people. His right as the God's choice ruler was to do what he wanted to with people because the gods played and people paid. But as the Greeks and Romans began hearing about this one God who was higher than their gods, this one God who was really the only God who used one nation to reach all nations, who wasn't trying to build up one nation to take care, take, to get rid of the others, but used one nation to reach all others, not to exalt over the other, but to save them all. They were all struck at that. How in the world would a God ever love the world? And how would the God of one nation choose all nations? Why would he do that? This is the God, this God who came to be with us as one of us showed us his heart through love, service, kindness, and humility and sacrifice. Who, what kind of God would do that? He taught them. He he taught that there was a mark that we all miss, yet he took our failures on his own back. Why in the world would he do this? He took our failures on his own back and died as a sacrifice for every one of us, for every one of them. They would hear this with captive hearts and minds and they would say, tell me more. This God became one of us, took every sin from all of us, died once and for all for all of us. And in his death, he forgave us of every sin. But that's not all. He rose back to life. In his sacrifice, he disarmed the pangs of sin and death. He was loosed from the grave. And in his resurrection, he freed every one of us from sin and bondage to this world. And he ascended and he sent his living spirit to be with us. He lives a human being on the throne of God, an advocate for every tribe and every tongue. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. He is Jesus Christ. In Him, we are saved. In Him, we are saved. From Him, we receive His Spirit. And through Him, we can live a new life. The Greeks and the Romans, like every pagan culture, dreamed of escaping bondage of this life. Add that to a message that there was a loving God who sent his son to die for us and save us. Their prayers were answered. Their hopes were realized. His spirit that was empowering these ordinary men and women to be bold into the face of death, in the face of troubles, in the face of trials. This is how the gospel won a pagan culture because it appealed to the longing for a God who loved and cared and showed them they could be free from a life of shame and guilt and grief of sin. The Holy Spirit moved and saved and the same spirit that moved through the disciples moved through them and they experienced a brand new life. What kind of life? They had hope in the face of loss. They had faith in the face of uncertainty. They had love and they chose love when it would be easier to choose lust. They had a reason to believe in the goodness of God and live in light of his goodness with hearts full of peace and purity. When the world took from them and threatened them, they held on to hope and faith. When the world tempted them, they chose love over lust, resisting sin, being raised above it. 
that seemed like an upside down way to live from the world's vantage point, but it really was and is living right side up. That's what being saved does. It buries the old way and raises up us all in a brand new way. Romans 6 verses 4 and 8 are very important scriptures that every Christian should at least have quick to reference, whether maybe even memorize them. This is what Paul says about our salvation. Therefore, we are buried with him in baptism. And as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so are we that we might walk in the newness of life. Being united together in his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. And if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. So what does that mean? When Jesus walked out of the grave, he reversed sin's gravitational pull on us. When he walked out of the grave, his spirit raises up what sin buried and drug down. His spirit guides and raises us from death to life. It looks opposite to the world. It really Uh, but it's really how God always intended it to be. See, they thought this was upside down living, but really it's right side up living. A supernatural message, spiritual lifestyle. And this begs the question, how can we turn our world upside down in 2021? I think it's through that same supernatural message And it's through that same spiritual lifestyle. We've talked about that approach. It's important that we must strive to make differences, but it also rests on what we do individually with our faith and every day's opportunities to live out our faith. I think we can learn a little bit from this next passage about how Saul and uh, Paul and Silas, when they spent time with the Bereans, there's something that is taught in this text that I think will help us turn our world upside down if we will do it like they did it. 17.10, then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went to the synagogue of the Jews. They, these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed and also not a few Greeks, prominent women as well as men, and when the Jews from Thessalonica learned from the word, uh, word, learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. So here we have a little known and not as often referenced church being established at Berea. Established by Paul as he passes from Thessalonica to Athens. He sees such potential in this group that he leaves Silas and Timothy there to build up and foster this church for a short while. This church began with both Gentiles and Jews. It got off the ground with a strong base. But there's something strong and commendable about the Bereans that I think stands out that, that, that stands out more than maybe any other church plant in the book of Acts. Notice verse 11. This group was more fair-minded than those at Thessalonica. And what made them different? They received the word with readiness, eagerness, and afterwards, or 
in between the services or in between Paul's meetings with them, Silas and Timothy's meetings with them, in response to what they received, they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so, to find out, is this true? Can it be true in me? Can it make the difference in me that Paul preaches it can? Can the resurrection of Jesus raise me up? Can his forgiveness be applied to me? Can his newness of life be experienced in me? Maybe you've heard this phrase before, but the idea of that we would be Berean Christians or Berean church members is the one that I want to spend the last few minutes thinking about. Because I think this is the key. This is the secret to turning our world upside down. This has to do with how we follow up with the word that is preached and taught in our churches or heard or received through any sort of service, regardless of whether you hear it here or anywhere. Uh, it's about how we respond to the scripture that we hear preached and taught from God's word. Now, this isn't really any different than what we've heard from the book of James before. James taught that we might would be doers of the word, not hearers only. That's from James chapter 1, verse 22. Hopefully you memorized that one before. But I think Acts 17, 11 is one that you ought to add to that list of important scriptures. See, this is how we turn the world upside down in 2021, by being doers, not just hearers. But I think we can learn from the Bereans in terms of their eagerness to follow up with the word that was given to them. Notice the readiness, the eagerness. Now, I don't like to self-promote, but this isn't as much about promoting what I do, but about promoting what the church and the offices and callings that God gives the church, what they're all about. I think the key to turning the world upside down is churches committed to biblical preaching and Christians committed to biblical practice. That may sound simple. It might not sound flashy, but I think that's what is most important. I still believe that God, by his spirit and by his word, uses every Sunday to feed the people of God, even Wednesdays to feed the people of God. I still believe in the offices and the callings of the local church. I believe that God is sovereign over every local body and uses the word preached at any given body to invite and equip its people to walk in the word. Regardless of whether the pastor teaches through the book literally or topically through the scriptures, God leads and guides each local shepherd to walk his flock through the word. And here's the key thing. Church is not just a place we come and observe. It's a place we come and obtain something. Something from God and from his word. And it's on us to be Bereans and take the word home and dig deeper and apply what we learn. The pastor's job is not just to impress with his knowledge or words, but to impart a desire for more words and more knowledge from the Bible. My goal is to show each and every one of God's people, his church, that this Bible, this book has practical truths that can change your life that can revolutionize your life privately, publicly, personally, relationally, professionally. You know why, and, and this might not really matter to you, but you know why I, I, on Sunday mornings and the way I, I do preaching, the, you know why I spend so much time, and, and I, I, maybe it's in vain, but why I go out of my way and I really try to format a message in terms of applying to the everyday seasons of our life, because I believe the word of God has 
practical application for every single one of you and every single one of us that we might see that God's word has something that we cannot live without in our personal lives, in our finances, in our marriages, in our work lives, in everything that we do. Even when we're considering politics and culture, the Bible has something invaluable to us that if we miss it, we miss something in our lives. I believe that. I believe it's worth doing whatever it takes to show people that. And it's our responsibility as hearers to take the word that God gives us through his church and allow God to water it, cultivate it, and grow it. Now, here's the Berean part. Think about anything that you plant. What happens if you do not tend to it and water it and if it doesn't receive the proper nutrients? What happens to any living thing if it does not get food and nutrients and water? It dies, right? One of the most underrated parts of the local church these days is hearing the word. That sounds weird to say, doesn't it? But as a pastor, I've learned that people are often worried about everything but that part of the church. You expect a preacher to say that, but I, 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 I promise you I'm on to something. Of course, the pastor has to do his job, but I know in, in this day of celebrity pastors, in this day of you can hear a preacher at any time of the day through any means, social media, radio, internet, YouTube, you can find messages, and that's great. I listen to a lot. But it, in this day when the local church often suffers in terms of what, is it, what does it really offer to people? People want to know, hey, what, is, you know, what do you have for me? In this day when church membership is more fluid than ever, I've talked to many other pastors who are greatly discouraged because the thing that they're most passionate about often is not near as prioritized as the churches that, by the churches they pastor. Churches look for pastors who can specialize and offer all sorts of talents and ideas. But what we need the most is biblical preaching and teaching. We need to be members, I count myself as one of you, members who hear the word, are hungry for the word, who hear it, apply it, and do it. Of course, you'd expect me to say that, I know. But this is the backbone of a healthy church, not events, not programs, not music. We should do all those things well. But the backbone of the church is biblical truth, not just being preached, but practiced. Now, of course, leaders must do their part. Paul told young Timothy in the letter, uh, 2 Timothy, I charge you, preach the word in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with long-suffering and doctrine. He says there'll be times when they will not endure sound doctrine. Well, they'll turn their ears to all sorts of things. Timothy, you preach the word and you do everything you can to convince them that God's word is an invaluable asset to their life. But all of us as members must do our part. One of the most obscure stories of the Bible comes to my mind when I think about what it means to be a Berean. As a pastor, I pray that God used this story more than any to influence us as his members, his disciples hungry for his word. Maybe you've heard the story of Gideon. Gideon was a judge that God raised up after the days of Joshua and Joshua died. They didn't have a leader and God raised up judges one after the other to be a leader in the certain area that they were vulnerable in. During the days of Gideon, the Midianites had raised up a thousands and thousands of forces to come against Israel and hope and take over Israel and undo the, the progress that Joshua made. Gideon asked the Lord for an army capable of fighting the enemy forces. 
He brought 22,000 ready men to God and he said, God, would you bless this army? And God said, no, get rid of half of them. And he came back with 10,000. He said, Gideon, I don't like the 10,000, but I'm gonna help you figure out which ones I want you to use. He kept telling the Lord, I need more, God. I don't need less, I need more. And God told Gideon, Gideon, it's not about the size of your army, but the spirit of your army. God wanted an army that was ready and prepared to fight for him in the nation. He gave Gideon a very odd prerequisite for recruiting troops and sorting through this 10,000 some men. Maybe you've heard this story before, but if you haven't, it's really cool. The Lord said to Gideon, these people are too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you. I'll show you which ones you should pick and get a load of this. So he brought, them to the, brought the people down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue like a dog, let's back up, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink and the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouth was 300 men, but all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. So there were 9,000 some men who sat dignified, taking one drink after the other, but 300 got on their hand, got on their faces and just started washing their faces and lapping it like a dog would drink water. And if you've watched a dog drink water, they're not very eloquent in how they get the water out of the bowl, but, bet, but they get the water out of the bowl, don't they? The Lord said to the Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. I want the 300 that are hungry and thirsty. I want the 300 that I know are eager for the water. You see the message there? The many thousands of troops the Midianites brought and her allies were nothing for the 300 eager children of Israel. This is what our churches need. Those who are eager and hungry for the word of God, like the Bereans were. Every opportunity to gather and study God's word corporately and devotionally is something we must value and anticipate and we must be like the Bereans. They receive the word with readiness and they search the scriptures. What's that word? Daily. Now listen, I know, I know. People tell me sometimes, Justin, that, you know, that, that message last week, it wasn't that good. But the one before that or the one after that, that was great. I have people tell me that I love your morning messages. I don't like your evening stuff and I love your evening stuff and I don't like your morning stuff. People tell me that stuff all the time and that's fine. I, you know, I, 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 I'm used to it and it's okay. I'm, I'm just a, nobody in the middle of Lincoln. There's a lot of other people you can listen to that are great and I encourage you to do so. This isn't about me, but I'll tell you this, as a pastor, my goal, I understand my calling over the local church is to feed the people of God with his word. Sometimes I do it better than others, more disciplined and more studied than others. And that's going to happen. I'm just a man. I just, I'm, I'm, I'm a fleshly person that has good days, bad days, off days and on days. But I know this, as God calls his men and women, God calls his men and pastors to preach and teach the word. We as church members must see every word that is given to us as something that God sees as important, as vital for our spiritual growth. As, as vital as the food that is set on our table. Maybe not quite as vital in terms of your livelihood, but in terms of our spiritual livelihood, it's as much or more. 
a pastor, uh, uh, Matt S- uh, Smethurst, um, he is one of the writers for many of the LifeWide Bible studies that we use here as a church um, the, through the Bible studies. Uh, Matt Smethurst is a pastor and a contributor to those Bible studies. He said something years ago that is so, so true. I don't remember 99% of the meals I've eaten, but they've kept me alive. God uses faithful, forgettable sermons to beautify his bride. How true that is. God uses faithful to his word messages, whether in Sunday school, small groups, and preaching like this, whether on the radio or somewhere else, but most importantly through his local church. God uses his word to equip us and to keep us alive, honestly. God uses his word to feed us and grow us and strengthen us. Church, my goal as a pastor is to always impart the truth of God's word in the hope that you can take what we talk about here and go farther with it. Go farther with it. The Bible can be understood by ordinary people, applied by ordinary people who read it eagerly and diligently with conscious dependence on God for help. So I gotta ask you, are you a Berean Christian? Are you a Berean church member? who takes the word of God. And and I'll be honest with you, I pray all the time that God would raise up uh, preachers and teachers in our church because I would love to add voices to the table because I know, hey, it would be great to have more than just me talking. I pray for God to raise up teachers in our our Sunday school or small group environments. I pray, and that's what I think the, the goal of those environments can do is raise up leaders and raise up voices. I pray that God add voices to the table But regardless of who the voice is, we can still make a difference in our world. We can still turn our worlds upside down. We can still be a gospel force for good and change if we are Berean Christians, Berean church members. We must be like those who served in Gideon's army who are lapping up, hungry and thirsty, excited and eager for God's word. Preaching should be good, yes, but practicing practicing it is a must. We must be doers, not just hearers. That's how we change the world. So I ask every one of you, take Acts 17, verse 11, write it down, memorize it. But more importantly, do it. Be eager, search the scriptures daily to find out whether these things are so. And let me just go ahead and give you, uh, tell you how that's going to work out. They are so. They are so, and they will be realized in every one of our lives if we are that eager and that hungry for God to work. That's how we change the world, church. That's how you can turn your world upside down. Really, how we can turn it right side up. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for this church. Thank you for these Berean Christians that are here tonight. Uh, I pray that you might would stir up within them an eagerness and an excitement for your word. Lord, help them to take this book home and go through it cover to cover. Help us to be like Gideon's army and let us be on our face before you, lapping up the word of God with eagerness and with hunger and with desire to see you work in our lives. God, I pray we might be Berean Christians, that we might turn our world upside down. It's still possible with the spiritual lifestyle, a supernatural message. What a difference we can make. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.